the, uh, the pastor's college in Ethiopia um, is a pretty amazing story. I mean, I get to go preach or teach over there in, in June with a friend of mine, another pastor in, in Philly. But talking with the men who started this, literally, it's a, this is a three-and-a-half-year-old church, and they're already starting a pastor's college. The reason they are is because the Lord, the minute they opened their doors, sent them 11 men who are pastors, who want to be pastors. I mean, they just opened their door to all of this potential leadership coming in, literally from you know, the many regions in Africa. So it's an amazing opportunity to get to go. So we'll be praying for you as you go this time. You can come back and tell me all that I need to know, what to eat, what not to eat, what to fly on, all these kinds of things. Uh, we, we, I heard from, from Mark that you guys have been doing this, this series, just finished up this series on gospel culture. We did a series in the fall up in the frozen Northland, uh, Westminster, um, on the gospel and culture. We live in very strange times, don't we? Uh, if you look at the culture that's out there, uh, I've, since the 60s, and I kind of grew up as a kid in the 60s, I don't remember another time in my lifetime that has just been really so bizarre. You can open your news feed and read and just go, what in the world? You know, and then the next story and the next story. So we live in strange times, and I'm going to tell you, read a little story to you from last fall. There was an um, engagement that Vice President Harris had, and she was speaking to some students at George Mason University, and the story goes like this. Vice President Kamala Harris lavished praise on a college student who accused Israel of committing, quote, ethnic genocide, telling her that your truth should not be suppressed. Harris had addressed a class of students at George Mason University in Northern Virginia to mark National Voter Registration Day. Following her brief talk, Harris called on students for questions. One of the students the vice president recognized identified herself as part Yemeni, part Iranian, and claimed that, quote, a lot of taxpayer money is allocated for funding the military, whether it's backing Saudi Arabia or in Palestine. She continued, you brought up how the power of the people and demonstrations and organizing is very valuable in America, the woman told Harris, but I see that over the summer there have been like protests and demonstrations in astronomical numbers standing with Palestine, but then just a few days ago there were funds allocated to continue backing Israel, which hurts my heart because it's ethnic genocide and a displacement of people, the same thing that happened in America, and I'm sure you're aware of this. As Harris gave the student her full attention, the co-ed continued, I bring this up also because of the issue of how Americans are struggling because of lack of health care, public health care, lack of affordable housing, and all this money ends up going to inflaming Israel and backing Saudi Arabia and whatnot. And I think that the people have spoken very often in what they do need, and I feel like there's a lack of listening. And I just feel like I need to bring this up because it affects my life and people I really care about's lives. So Vice President Harris said, I'm glad you did. I'm glad you did. And again, this is about the fact that your voice, your perspective, your experience, your truth should not be suppressed. And it must be heard, right? So according to this report, the student had a perspective that's something that the Vice President called her truth. 
This student felt like she saw a clear line between the evil nation of Israel and the victimized people of Palestine. She didn't want the U.S. to continue to give money to Israel. She stood on the Palestinian side of the line that she had drawn. And then Vice President Harris drew a line as well. We have people drawing lines all over the place now, explaining this is good and this is bad. So she drew her line. She said, we don't know from what she said whether she even agreed with this student or not. But her line was drawn in such a way that on one side was the idea that a person can have his or her own truth. Whatever you feel is true is true for you. It's your truth. And on the other side, by default, would be the idea that there's any kind of objective truth or reality out there. So from her commendation of the student, it would appear that Vice President Harris stands on and favors the side of that line that she had drawn that says, your truth is good truth. You can have your own truth. And therefore, there is no objective truth. That's the culture so often that we live in today. So we're going to find out whether Luke agrees with that as we read from Acts chapter 4. This is a part of our series that we did on the book of Acts. I'm going to give you a little bit of context um, at, at some point today. We'll break into that, just go back a little bit into the, the, what had happened prior to this. But let's read from Acts 4, 1 through 22 together. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came upon them. And what had just happened was that the lame man, the one that we sing about, he's walking and leaping and praising God, had just gotten healed. And, and this is what happens as Peter's preaching to the people. As they were speaking, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. They arrested them, they put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, the rulers and the scribes and elders gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them, meaning Peter and John, and probably this man that has been healed, in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they, the leaders, saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it, whatever it is, may spread no further among the people, 
Let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have heard and seen. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. So I believe that Luke wants us to see in this inclusion of this story, which he chose to do, that God has drawn a line, just like that young woman had drawn a line, and Vice President Harris had drawn a line. God has drawn a line between salvation and condemnation, with Jesus on one side and every other name on the other side. So let's pray together. Father, we do live in strange times. We live in times where many things are trumpeted as truth. People draw lines daily in their news feeds and in their social media and just in, in arguments that they get into. We have lines between liberals and conservatives and Republicans and Democrats and even within various churches, we've got all kinds of lines that have been drawn, Lord. So we ask, Father, that rather than drawing our own lines, we would look to what you have done, what you have said, how you have spoken into this world of ours, and how you've called us, even as this wonderful church has been learning to be representative of a, a different kind of culture, a gospel culture. So Lord, help us to hear Luke's heart. Help us to hear your heart as we study this passage together today. Lord, may it affect us in the way that we live day by day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So God has drawn a line between truth and falsehood, between salvation and condemnation, between the name of Jesus and every other name. And Luke wants us, he wants Theophilus, who he's writing to, on the correct side of that line. He doesn't want him on the other side. So we're going to look at three sections just to organize the way we're going to study. The second section will actually break out this text. But I want to look back at context because, we're, again, we're jumping into the middle of the book of Acts here. So context is first, and then we're going to look at contrasts. The contrast that Luke often uses uh, in the second section, which will be the longest, and then just some points of conclusion at the end. So context, contrasts, and conclusion. The context, uh, as you're so well taught here, Mark is just an amazing teacher. Uh, we all think so. All of the pastors in the West as we gather, Mark uh, has a great reputation as a teacher. So I know that you all know this, but just to remind you, anytime we open our Bibles, it's important for us to consider what's the context of the particular passage. What kind of passage is it? Is it a narrative? Is it, is it instruction? Is it poetry? Is it prophecy? What happened before the passage we're reading? What will happen after the passage that we're reading? Who are the characters involved in the story, if any? Ultimately, we want to answer the question, what is the intent of the author as he wrote to the original audience? And from that understanding, we can gather how then can we live in, in light of that. The book of Acts is primarily a narrative. There's some 
uh, commentary along the way as Luke inserts some thoughts. But for the most part, it's just a collection of stories and historical reports that were selected and reported by Luke under the anointing of the Holy Spirit. As we read in the immediately preceding section about the story of the lame man from of the man who was lame from birth and what happened to him in his encounter with Peter and John, we need to be asking this question. Why did Luke choose this story to place right here in this book, this letter that he's writing to his friend Theophilus? He had already written Luke, and now he writes Acts, and he's continuing to tell him more about what happened. So he writes in the very beginning of Acts is this. In the first book of Theophilus, I have dealt, that's Luke, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day when he was taken up. After he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So that's how this letter starts, saying, I I wrote to you, the, the entire gospel of Luke was written to tell you about what Jesus began to do. And the implication here is, and he's going to continue to work on down through this day, this day in your church and the things that you all are doing now. In the first two chapters of Acts, we hear Luke tell of the instruction given to the believers that after Jesus' departure or his ascension into heaven, they are to wait in Jerusalem until they receive power from on high. So then we see this infant church, this baby church, 120, gathered together, probably in fear, what in the world is going to happen now? But they're obedient to the Lord, and they respond, and they wait. And then we have Pentecost come, and the Spirit is poured out, the very teaching that Mark's going to bring to these Ethiopian men uh, over there in a couple of weeks. The Spirit is poured out on this baby church, and it just explodes. Amazing things happen. Peter delivers the first evangelistic sermon in the, in the history of Christianity, and 3,000 people are saved. I've rarely preached and had 3,000 people saved. Rarely, rarely has that happened. Okay? So we hear this explosive growth that happened. He then proceeds to tell us of the characteristics of this new church, how they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's this. To the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. And how the Lord continued to add to their numbers. And, listen to this, how all the people in Jerusalem held them in high regard. That was part of the culture at this time in that place was the church was highly esteemed. There have been points of time in our culture that that was true. No longer true today, sadly. Then Luke continues by zooming in from these unnamed masses, these 3,000 plus people that have come, and he zooms in on this story in chapter 3 of this one man, a man born 40 years old now who was born unable to walk. He's never walked in his life. So Luke chooses, of all the stories that were probably happening all over Jerusalem at that time, he chooses this one. We need to be asking why. So here's this beggar. He had depended all his life on the help of others, carrying him, giving him alms, all the other kinds of things that he needed to have to to maintain his life. Peter and John meet him as they're going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and somehow empowered by the Spirit, They respond to his request. Now, he requests what he's come to expect. I need alms. He has a perspective about life. This is how life goes. I'm lame. I need other people to help me. They stop. They're looking at me, and I look up expectantly thinking, I'm going to get alms. 
but they give him something that he wasn't expecting. So they fix their eyes on him, and instead they give him this other kind of help. Silver and gold, we have none, as the song goes, but what we have, we give to you in the name of Jesus Christ. Rise up and walk in. Peter extends his hands. This man who had never walked, never experienced standing on his feet, is pulled to his feet, and he's suddenly immediately strengthened and is able to walk and leap and praise God, and then we get the song that we sing in Sunday school. So as he is healed, he then follows them into the temple, and we'll talk about that a little bit more, just the uniqueness of this story and the situation, why that happened and how incredible it was that that happened. So this miraculous intervention and the subsequent response of the healed man gathered a crowd, as you can imagine. They've walked past this man into the temple for the last 40 years. And all of a sudden, he's in there making a fool out of himself, kind of like King David. You know, he's walking, he's leaping and praising God. That is not typically happening, especially for this guy. So the crowd gathers, and Peter, again, like he did before at Pentecost, seizes the opportunity to preach. He's going to preach, and here's his message. You killed Jesus, God raised him up. You better repent. I mean, that's in essence what he's preaching here. That's his message. He wants to point them to Jesus, to the name of Jesus. He has something to say about this line that God has drawn. So up to this point in the account, Luke has reported, has reported zero opposition. As I mentioned earlier at the end of chapter 2, this little summary statement, all the people, now excluding the leaders, of course, but all the people held them in high regard. So there's been no opposition until now. So as Peter's preaching... The level of irritation has grown among the leaders. And so now, for the first time in the book of Acts, for the first time since Jesus' resurrection, we read of disapproval. So even as they're speaking, the captain of the temple guard comes and interrupts them, and they are greatly annoyed, the text says. So the people are amazed, and the leaders are greatly annoyed by Jesus. So as we begin to study now today's text, beginning in chapter 4, we have a cast of familiar characters. These we know, Peter and John. Now we have this new believer, the, healing, the, the healed man. The crowds who had seen and heard about it are gathered. We've had crowds before, but now for the first time in Acts, enter the Jewish leaders. Last time we had seen them was when they were mocking Jesus at the cross. And now again, we're going to see them as they enter into this new story of the church. So just to give you an idea of who this group was, they were really comprised of three, the Sanhedrin was comprised of three distinct groups. The Sadducees were the ruling class at that time. Uh, they had curried favor with Rome, and so they had, they had a lot of political clout. One commentator said they were like the executive, the judicial, and the What's the other branch of government? The legislative branch all in one. That's what they were. They were that. They, uh, helped, they, they held this tension between Rome and our faith and how do we keep everybody happy so that we can continue to do what we do. They did not believe in the resurrection. And we note that from the gospel accounts. They did not believe in the resurrection. But they are the ruling class. So all of those high priests came from that group. The priests, also mentioned here, were those responsible for taking care of the temple and for the daily sacrifices and the offerings, all of the continuation that had been going on since the time of Moses with duties prescribed by Moses. And there were probably both Sadducees and Pharisees, two different sects in the priestly office. 
And then finally, we hear about the captain of the temple guard, who was a man second in authority to the high priest. And he was responsible for maintaining order in the temple and thereby assuring that there would be no political ramifications. You remember when Caiaphas prophesied that it would be better for one man to die than that the entire nation would perish. He's obviously thinking of that under the sun. Better that we let this man die so that we don't have riots, so we can maintain the, the Pax Romana with our, you know, within our society. But he actually spoke truth. He just didn't realize what he was speaking. It is better that this one die, lest the nation perish in an eternal way. And that's what he didn't know. He didn't know of what he spoke. So those are some of the details, the context that Luke wants us to be aware of as we study this particular portion of the story, which he has included. He wants Theophilus, he wants us to understand, listen, God has drawn a line between truth and falsehood, between salvation and condemnation. Jesus is on one side of that line, and every other name Every other thing that you might rely on for salvation is on the other side. It's not your truth, Theophilus. It's God's truth about must, what you must concern yourself. So, if I don't skip a page here, we'll be in better shape. Second, second section, contrast. And this is where we're going to look at this particular text. Luke often, right from the very beginning of his gospel, he takes John and Jesus he contrasts two people. He often uses groups of two all through his writing. If you go back and read the Gospel of Luke, you'll see how often he'll take two groups and use the differences, the contrasts and comparisons of those two to make points as he's bringing his word to us, bringing his writing to us. So this one, this story is similar in that way, and there's many contrasts. We're going to actually look at 10. Now, I won't be talking for any longer than 45 minutes on each of these points, so you can settle in. Popcorn's coming in in a little while. No. The, the only way you're allowed as a preacher to have 10 points is if you really make them sub-points, because otherwise you we're only allowed to have three, you know. That's the way it goes. We have three sections today, and I'm hiding 10 points in the second section, so that way it's legal, and I won't get myself in trouble. Okay, so the first contrast is this. The contrast between the lame man before and the lame man after, all right? So Luke gives us this from the beginning. Before, he was weak, he was dependent, he was unable to care for himself, he was unable to stand, he was carried from place to place, and in all probability, the Jewish historians write, he was probably excluded from the temple. Now, there's no Old Testament law that would have excluded a man born lame, but what had happened over the centuries was the Jewish leadership had looked at the, the law, which says we can't bring a maimed or imperfect sacrifice into the temple, and they had applied that to people. So by this time, the reason this man was sitting outside the temple gate was he was forbidden to come in, not by the Lord, but by the Jewish leadership. It's very sad, but he's there. He knows people are going to be coming to pray, and this is his living. This is how he makes his living. After the contrast is we have him with strong ankles and feet. He's able to walk and leap. He's worshiping with abandon. He's entering into the temple with Peter and John. So he's joining them. He's standing with Peter and John at the hearing. We can learn that as we read through the text. He was clearly with them. Peter says, this man. So he was with them when they went to the trial. Secondly, we see the contrast between the reaction of the crowd 
They were filled with wonder and amazement, we read in chapter 3, verse 10. They were utterly astounded. They were gathering. They wanted to hear this. And then contrast the reaction of the Jewish leaders. We've already noted this. They were greatly annoyed. Notice, they were acting. They were walking according to their truth. What they believed. They believed that Jesus had died. One of the commentators said they had cut off the head of the snake thinking the snake was dead and now there are hundreds, thousands of snakes in Jerusalem filling the temple with the teaching of Jesus. They thought they were done with this. So they're they're greatly annoyed by what's going on. They were living according to what they believed to be true. Better to be at peace with Rome and compromise in whatever areas we need to than to believe what we've just seen. We're annoyed by this. We're annoyed by the fact that there's this story about Jesus being resurrected from the dead. There is no resurrection. Well, how do you explain Jesus? We're ignoring Jesus. There is no resurrection. That's what they did. That's what they're doing. So there's this contrast again. Reaction of the crowd, the reaction of the leadership. The third contrast is between the wisdom of the apostles and the ultimately confused and nonsensical responses of this leadership. So see how Peter begins this address. He begins in a very courteous way. He's not argumentative. He starts by addressing them with respect. Then you see the brilliant wisdom given to Peter by the Spirit. He turns this inquiry on its head. Here's what he does. If we're here because of a good deed done to a a needy man? In other words, every other time that somebody does good, you guys say, that's great. But today, we've done a good deed to a, a needy man, and we're here because of that. Something's wrong with, with this picture here. So he starts by just flipping this on its head, and then he reverses the roles. They, he becomes the inquisitor, and they become the ones on, on trial. He says, look, you, you. This Jesus, you killed him. They thought he was on trial, but he knew who was really on trial here. It was the Jewish leadership on trial. He charged them with uh, their complicity and their guilt in putting Jesus to death. So the accused becomes the accuser. He affirms the action of God in drawing a hard line of truth across all of human history and all of human activity. He says this in Acts 4, 12, key verse. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So a double negative, no other name, no one else given under heaven. There is one way. This is echoing what Jesus had said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to Father except through me. That is God's line. On one side is Jesus, on the other side is anything else that you could depend on for salvation, anything else that you might choose. By contrast, see the reaction of the leaders. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived they were uneducated common men. They're astonished. They recognize they've been with Jesus. They were with that snake that we cut his heads off. But seeing him who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say. Remember how Jesus had been silent before them? And now they have nothing to say. Luke is a brilliant writer, especially as he's anointed by the Holy Spirit. 
They commanded them to leave the council. They conferred with one another, saying, now listen to this. What shall we do with these men? That a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. We can't deny it. In other words, we've seen this with our own eyes. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let's warn them not to do this anymore. I mean, that is this nonsense, absolute nonsense. It's like when you open your phone in the morning and you go, really? It's nonsense. It is not true. There's so much out there masquerading as truth that is simply not true. They're silent. They've seen the truth of the healing. They've seen the boldness of the apostles and noted these are fishermen. These are tax collectors. These are scum of the earth people. They're not in the elite class like us. How can this be? They're seeing before their eyes miracles all over the place. Not only the man, but how can these people, these types of people, be teaching us? This is impossible. But instead of saying, Lord, how is this possible? Are we wrong? Is there something other than what we've believed all these years or come to believe? No, they say no. We are staying with what we've become familiar with. So there's that contrast between Paul, Peter's wisdom and the foolishness, just the consternation, the ridiculous responses of the leadership. Fourth contrast is between the boldness, which is a favorite word in Acts of the apostles, and the fear of the Jewish leadership. Make note here, as we're looking at this, this is the very room that Jesus stood in just weeks before, where he was condemned to death. The same group of people have now arrested these men, Peter and John, along with this healed man, called them in before. They knew this was the room where he was condemned. They have no idea what's going to happen to them. The very same fate, it could be that God's going to take them too. And that, that would be in his plan. But look at what they do. They're bold. They're not cowering. Peter is no longer running from a slave girl. He's preaching. He is condemning these men, not from his own heart, but from the word of God. Don't do this. He's saying to them, you got to see. So they're in the very same room where Jesus had been tried and condemned, and yet they're bold. Ask yourself the question, who has the power and authority here in this room today? For the Jewish leadership, the fear of the crowd, the fear of Rome, became the predominant determining factors in the way that they responded. In fear, they remained on the opposite side of the line from Jesus. They continued in their error. Fifth contrast between belief and the faith of the apostles and the crowd that had gathered, that had believed, and all that were added that day to the church, and then the, on the other side, the unbelief and the hard-heartedness of the Jewish leaders. So we have a contrast of faith and unbelief in this story. We see the resoluteness of Peter and John's faith in spite of the opposition. They're not running anymore. They're filled with the Spirit. They're full of faith. We see the healed man standing there. He's not saying, wait, I, I had nothing to do with this. I, 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 mean, I was minding my own business for that I've been doing for the last 40 years, and these guys came up, and they healed me. I didn't, I didn't ask for that. You know, he's not trying to get out of it. He's there with them. And all those other people who had believed that day, they were in faith in spite of the fact that while they're choosing to believe, while the Lord is causing them to be born again, under Peter's teaching, they're seeing them taken away by the leadership. There was tremendous faith going on there, the faith here. By contrast, again, we see that the leaders of the Jews are working very hard to disbelieve 
their own eyes at this point. They're working overtime to say, no, we've drawn a line. We know that's the right line. It's my truth, and I'm staying over here no matter what happens, no matter what you show me. Daryl Bach, commentator, writes this. This passage stresses the sign or evidence that God has given that he stands behind Jesus. The fact that the healing and its reality are evident and yet rejected reveals the extent of hard-heartedness that stands behind rejecting Jesus. Rejection of Jesus is not rational, but a reflection of a refusal to see what God has done. We are witnesses of what God has done. We get to tell people what God has done. God is the only one that can take a hard heart, a stony heart, and turn it to flesh. But he's called us to do exactly what Peter and John did. Sixth, and this is a subtle one, there's a contrast between peace with Rome and peace with God. The Sadducees wanted peace with Rome. They want it at all costs. We must maintain the status quo. And Peter is coming and saying, there's a way to peace with God, and it's one way, and it's going to mean the rejection, the repudiation of everything that you've done and thought before. You have to turn from all that you've done and turn to this. Do you want peace with Rome, peace at all costs, or do you want peace with God? Seventh, also subtle. There's a connection here between healing and salvation. The same word is used. When Peter talks about, if you want to hear about how this man was healed, and then he later on says there's salvation and no one else, it's the same word. It harkens back to when Jesus healed the paralytic back in the Gospels account. So he says, my son, your sins are forgiven. And then they say, well, who are you to forgive sins? And he goes on to say, what's, what's more difficult, to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise up? and walk. Again, there's a linking, and this man becomes a symbol. The reason that of all the crowds that were there, Luke chose this story is because it personifies, it shows exactly what happens to a specific individual when he is saved, not only in the natural, but also in the spiritual. He's connecting these two things together in this account in the same way that Jesus did with the paralytic. Eighth contrast, between the Old Testament and all that it represented, the Old Temple and all that it represented, and the New Temple. This is one of the primary things that Luke wants us to see here. Luke, there's temple imagery throughout uh, the Luke and in, into the book of Acts, the, the initial section. Luke, uh, one of his primary messages is that this is coming to an end. This old way of doing things the, the line that the Sadducees have drawn, that, this, that the leaders of the, of the Jewish nation have drawn over centuries, and that they've dug deeper and deeper in ways that God never intended. They've missed the point. It's now coming to an end. So the power and wisdom and the boldness of the apostles point us to the new era of the church. There's a new sheriff in town. Okay? Peter is taking charge in this trial. Jesus was silent. Peter is not. It's time for the church to rise up. It's time for the end of all the old system, everything that has come before, animal sacrifices, the, the way of having to come to God through the high priest going into the, the Holy of Holies, all of that that's been shadows for years. He's saying today, in your presence, Jewish leadership, the end has come. 
Only a few decades from that point in time, the entire temple would be destroyed by Rome, never to be rebuilt. It's done. Okay? So that, the weakness and the confusion and the fear of the Jewish leaders point to the fulfillment of Jesus' prediction. Not one stone is going to be left on another because there's something better coming. What has been the shadow is now going to be replaced by the reality. That's the message. That's the contrast another that Peter and that Luke is drawing here. The ninth contrast. Very interesting one. Between the rejected stone and what God has declared would be either the capstone or the cornerstone. And what's really interesting in the ESV, this, this, it literally means the head of the corner. He, the, this, this stone that you rejected, Jesus, has become the head of the corner. And at various points in Jewish literature, that is translated as the capstone. The capstone is the top of the arch. When the, when the building is completed, it's the final piece to be put on. Whereas the cornerstone, I used to work for a, a very, very gifted bricklayer, and the cornerstone, he would take all kinds of time to make sure he got the first stone. It's the first stone. It's what everything else in the building is built off of and plumbed off of. It's very important that it be exactly right. So there's a, there's a double meaning here with this. Okay? Jesus is both the capstone, the end. He's the top. Everything is completed. Everything that this temple, that the tabernacle in the wilderness, and that this temple has represented and has meant for the Jewish people as a national group, as a nation, called that through them all the nations of the world would be blessed in, the, in, the, in Abraham's covenant, now has come to an end. The capstone has been put on. And simultaneously, the cornerstone of this new temple is being laid. So there's a contrast here. They see Jesus as a rejected stone. We don't like this. We're tossing it into the rubble heap. God says, no, that's my chosen stone. He's ending the first, and he's starting what will be eternal, this new temple made of living stones sitting in this room today. Okay? That's, that started here. It was announced to the Jewish leadership right here, the fulfillment of Psalm 118 right here. So we have this contrast. Jesus had quoted Psalm 118 in his parable of the vineyard. The stone that the builders rejected has become the head of the corner. And they knew it was about them that he was speaking. Peter brings that teaching back right here and says, this stone, this is the one, Jesus, the one that you, you cut off his head hoping that it would disappear. And it didn't. It's back. We're back. We're back. And now there's thousands of us. You cannot stop what God is doing. That's the contrast. Okay, finally, the most significant contrast, and this is really the primary point of this passage, the contrast between the name of Jesus and every other name. Notice that Peter and John did not promote themselves. Oh, I'm so tired of the superstar Christian leadership that point to themselves. Oh, God, please deliver us. Peter and John, they, it, do you think we did this? What are they doing? There's one name. There is one name. All we are are messengers. All we are are heralds. We're here to tell you, guys, you're wrong. You are dead wrong. There is not your truth. There is not whatever you think is okay. There is one truth. There is one way. You killed Jesus. God raised him. Repent and believe. 
That's our message. That was their message. It's the message that we have today. The name of Jesus, the name, it's not just magical incantation. As long as we pray in the name of Jesus some magical way, that's not what he's saying here. The, the name represents the, the entirety of God's person, his character. Exodus 34, the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast mercy. And then as we fast forward through the pages of Scripture, we see Jesus. When you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. It's the, his name is just shorthand for all that he is. Peter says in 2 Peter, his divine power has granted you everything you need for life and godliness. How? Through your knowledge of him. Through your knowledge of this name. This name is above every name. This is why Peter was so, so concerned when he wrote to the Corinthians and said, some of you say you're of Apollos and Peter and, and even me, and, and some of you say you're of Christ, meaning we, we've got, we're the only way, we've figured this all out. Nonsense. There's one Savior, and we're not him. There's one superstar, and none of us are him. Okay? It's Jesus. It's not us. Don't worship us. You know, you'll see this, throughout, this theme throughout the book of Acts. The name of Jesus, Paul, Luke, as he, in his characteristic style, he just emphasizes it again and again. He says that, that it was in the name of Jesus that this man was healed, he tells the crowd. It was, as he reaches out, he says, in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. He tells the, he tells the listeners it was in his name, in Jesus' name. And then as he gets into chapter 4, he's saying five times he's talking about this name, this name, this name, as you go through this particular section, Luke is hammering this nail. It's the name of Jesus. It's, it's the person of Jesus. It's the work of Jesus. That's our message. That is the singular truth. That is the only truth you need to know. So, Alan Thompson writes this to us. He said, overall then, Luke's account of public temple activity in 3.1 through 4.22, so that's where... Peter and John were going up to the temple to pray. This whole thing happened, and now we come to the end of that section. Draws attention to the fulfillment of God's restorative purpose in the name of Jesus. The Lord Jesus culminates the hope of Scripture and all the promises of God from Abraham to Moses, David, Isaiah, and all the prophets. His reign as the Lord who sends the Holy Spirit and in whom forgiveness is found means that believers find all they need in him. There is now no need for the old temple system and its leadership as both have come to an end for the true people of God. All right? You are, those of you who believe, those of you who have said, I forget my lines, erase them all. I want this line, and I want to be on this side of this line with Jesus. I'll stand with Jesus until the very end and beyond. So, Part three, conclusion. The conflict here in Acts has begun. It continues to this day. The line that God had drawn before the foundation of the earth, this is not a new line. It's just been revealed now. It's been, as Jesus has come, all of a sudden, things that have been in part, as part of the creation from the very beginning are now being made evident. All that the old temple system meant, now we go, oh, I see. This is what this, that's happening here. It's been emphatically proclaimed by the apostles to the Jewish leadership. The time of ignorance is over. Nobody can claim from this point forward, no human being can claim that it is impossible to know what is really true. 
My truth is irrelevant. There is one truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. He's the cornerstone of the new temple, and he's the savior of all who trust him alone for salvation. That Jewish temple built by Solomon, rebuilt after the Babylonian captivity, enhanced by Herod the Great to be one of the wonders of the world at that time, considered probably the greatest building in that part of the world, in a few decades, as I mentioned, would be destroyed by the Roman legions, the covenantal system that it represented. All of the sacrifices are done away by the one sacrifice of Jesus. This new temple comprised of you, of us, of all believers down through the ages, everyone who's responded and said, yes, I believe. Help my unbelief. I, for, I, I repent of all other trusts, all other idols, all other things that I might have trusted in for salvation. I believe that Jesus is crucified, resurrected, and glorified Savior who has instituted this entirely new covenantal system in my blood, my body broken for you, that we celebrate every time we celebrate communion. The truth about God's line is etched into the fabric of the universe from before creation and now has been announced to the world. Listen to this. This Jesus, speaking to the, the, one, the very men who had condemned Jesus to die, this Jesus whom you crucified, rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, there is salvation in no one else for there is no under, another name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Remember this story. Luke he gave it a lot of airtime. Pretty much two chapters of the book of Acts are devoted to this story. That's significant. He wants you to remember because this man represents somebody who's been taken from the old system, which had ultimately rejected him and said, you can't come in because... Not because God says so, because we say so. And ultimately, that's where all of our truths lead to nonsense. This man was wrested from that position. And he, he went with Peter and John into the temple, walking, leaping, praising God. The very joy that Dan talked about earlier should be characteristic, because we're all that man. We were all dead. We were all hopeless. We couldn't walk. We couldn't do anything in the spiritual realm until Jesus said, in the name of Jesus, rise up. So let's rise up, church. Let's do the things we're called to do. God has drawn a line between salvation and condemnation. Jesus is on one side, every other name on the other. We have to be willing to say that. In a world that values tolerance, Peter is not tolerant. Okay? In a world that values inclusion, Peter says there's one way to be included. We have to be bold, not arrogant. We have to be humbly bold to be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks us to give the reason for the hope that we have. His name is Jesus. He alone can save you. Let's pray. Father, we pray for this kind of boldness. We pray that where we have even dabbled in wondering, in doubting, in questioning, in thinking that maybe we know better in questioning your goodness or your wisdom or, Lord, we ask you to remove all of that from us. We pray that we would be laser focused like these men, like Peter and John, who boldly in the same place that Jesus was condemned, preached Jesus and him alone. He alone is your salvation. Repent, believe. You're sinners. You need a savior. There's only one. 
Lord, give us that same boldness, both to address our own hearts where we can stumble, where we can struggle with unbelief sometimes. We ask you to help our unbelief, Lord. Help us to believe more and more and more. Fill us again and again with your spirit. Grant us the same boldness that this early first church had. And we pray, Lord, that this community would be dramatically affected by the boldness of this congregation. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.